Section 9 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter 5. The State, Part 2. Section 40. The Constitution of the State. In the definition of a state as a society with a special end and function, there is implied a permanent and definite organization, a determinate and systematic form, structure and operation. A body politic is not constituted by a temporary and casual union of individuals for the purpose of repelling an external enemy or of executing judgment on some domestic evildoer. The transition from natural to political society is effected only when the union of individuals has assumed a certain measure of permanence and organization, and when their combined operations in pursuit of their common end have become in a certain degree systematic and definite. It is only when a society has acquired such an organization, whether by way of agreement, custom, forcible imposition or otherwise that it takes on the nature of a body politic or state it is only then that there comes into existence the organ which is essential to the performance of those functions which constitute political government the organization of a modern state is of extraordinary complexity and it is usual to regard it as divisible into two distinct parts the first consists of its fundamental or essential elements the second consists of its secondary elements, the details of state, structure and state action. The first, essential and basal portion, is known as the constitution of the state. The second has no generic title. Constitutional law is, as its name implies, the body of those legal rules which determine the constitution of the state. It is not possible to draw any hard and fast line between the Constitution and the remaining portions of the State's organization. Neither, therefore, is it possible to draw any such line between constitutional law and other branches of the legal system. The distinction is one of degree, rather than one of kind, and is drawn for purposes of practical convenience, rather than in obedience to any logical requirement. The more important, fundamental and far-reaching any principle or practice is, the more likely it is to be classed as constitutional. Conversely, the more special, detailed and limited in its application, the less likely it is to find a place in any exposition of the law and practice of the Constitution. The structure of the supreme legislature and the methods of its action pertain to constitutional law. The structure and operations of subordinate legislatures, such as those possessed by the colonies, are justly entitled to the same position. But those of such subordinate legislatures, as a borough council would by general consent be treated as not sufficiently important and fundamental to be deemed part of the Constitution. So the organization and powers of the Supreme Court of Judicature, treated in outline and not in detail, pertain to constitutional law, while it is otherwise with courts of inferior jurisdiction, and with the detailed structure and practice of the Supreme Court itself. 
In some states, though not in England, the distinction between constitutional law and the remaining portions of the legal system is accentuated and made definite by the embodiment of the former in a special and distinct enactment, the terms of which cannot be altered by the ordinary forms of legislation. Such constitutions are said to be rigid, as opposed to those which are flexible. That of the United States of America, for example, is set forth in a document agreed upon by the founders of the Commonwealth, as containing all those principles of state structure and action sufficiently important to be deemed fundamental and therefore constitutional. The provisions of this document cannot be altered without the consent of three-fourths of the legislatures of the different states. The English Constitution, on the other hand, is flexible. It is defined and set apart in no distinct document, and is not distinguishable from the residue of the law in respect of the methods of its alteration. We have defined constitutional law as the body of those legal principles which determine the constitution of a state, which determine, that is to say, the essential and fundamental portions of the state's organisation. We have here to face an apparent difficulty and a possible objection. How, it may be asked, can the constitution of a state be determined by law at all? There can be no law unless there is already a state whose law it is, and there can be no state without a constitution. The state and its constitution are therefore necessarily prior to the law. How then does the law determine the constitution? Is constitutional law in reality law at all? Is not the constitution a pure matter of fact? with which the law has no concern. The answer is that the Constitution is both a matter of fact and a matter of law. The Constitution as it exists de facto underlies of necessity the Constitution as it exists de jure. Constitutional law involves concurrent constitutional practice. It is merely the reflection within courts of law of the external objective reality of the de facto organization of the state. It is the theory of the Constitution, as received by courts of justice. It is the Constitution, not as it is in itself, but as it appears when looked at through the eye of the law. The Constitution, as a matter of fact, is logically prior to the Constitution as a matter of law. In other words, constitutional practice is logically prior to constitutional law. There may be a state and a constitution without any law, but there can be no law without a state and a constitution. No constitution, therefore, can have its source and basis in the law. It has of necessity an extra-legal origin, for there can be no talk of law until some form of constitution has already obtained de facto establishment by way of actual usage and operation. When it is once established, but not before, the law can and will take notice of it. Constitutional facts will be reflected with more or less accuracy in courts of justice as constitutional law. The law will develop for itself a theory of the Constitution, as it develops a theory of most other things which may come in question in the administration of justice. As an illustration of the proposition that every Constitution has an extra-legal origin, we may take the United States of America. The original constituent states achieved their independence by way of rebellion against the lawful authority of the English Crown. Each of these communities therefore established a constitution for itself, by way of popular consent expressed directly or through representatives. By virtue of what legal power or authority was this done? 
Before these constitutions were actually established, there was no law in these colonies save that of England, and it was not by the authority of this law, but in open and forcible defiance of it, that these colonial communities set up new states and new constitutions. Their origin was not merely extra-legal, it was illegal. Yet, so soon as these constitutions succeeded in obtaining de facto establishment in the rebellious colonies, they received recognition as legally valid from the courts of those colonies. Constitutional law followed hard upon the heels of constitutional fact. Courts, legislatures and law had alike their origin in the constitution. Therefore, the constitution could not derive its origin from them. So also with every constitution that is altered by way of illegal revolution. By what legal authority was the Bill of Rights passed, and by what legal title did William III assume the crown? Yet the Bill of Rights is now good law, and the successors of King William have held the crown by valid titles. Quod fieri non debet factum vale. Constitutional law, therefore, is the judicial theory, reflection, or image of the constitution de facto, that is to say, of constitutional practice. Here, as elsewhere, law and fact may be more or less discordant. The constitution, as seen by the eye of the law, may not agree in all points with the objective reality. Much constitutional doctrine may be true in law, but not in fact, or true in fact, but not in law. Power may exist de jure, but not de facto, or de facto, but not de jure. In law, for example, the consent of the Crown is no less necessary to legislation than is that of the two Houses of Parliament. Yet, in fact, the Crown has no longer any power of refusing its consent. Conversely, the whole system of Cabinet government, together with the control exercised by the House of Commons over the Executive, is as unknown in law as it is well established in fact. Even in respect of the boundaries of the state's territories, the law and the fact may not agree. A rebellious province may have achieved its de facto independence, that is to say, it may have ceased to be in the de facto possession and control of the state long before this fact receives de jure recognition. Nowhere is this discordance between the constitution in fact and in law more serious and obvious than in England. A statement of the strict legal theory of the British Constitution would differ curiously from a statement of the actual facts. Similar discrepancies exist, however, in most other states. A complete account of a constitution, therefore, involves a statement of constitutional custom, as well as of constitutional law. It involves an account of the organized state as it exists in practice, and in fact, as well as of the reflected image of this organization as it appears in legal theory. Although the constitution de jure and the constitution de facto are not necessarily the same, they nevertheless tend towards coincidence. Constitutional law and practice react upon each other, each striving to assimilate the other to itself. The objective facts of state organization tend to mould legal theory into conformity with themselves. They seek expression and recognition through legislation, or through the law-creating functions of the courts. Conversely, the accepted legal theory endeavours to realise itself in the facts. 
The law, although it necessarily involves a pre-existing constitution, may nevertheless react upon and influence the constitution from which it springs. It cannot create a constitution ex nihilo, but it may modify to any extent one which already exists. Constitutional practice may alter, while constitutional law remains the same, and vice versa. But the most familiar and effective way of altering the practice is to alter the law. The will of the body politic, as expressed through the legislature and the courts, will commonly realise itself in constitutional fact, no less than in constitutional theory. Section 41. The Government of the State. Political or civil power is the power vested in any person or body of persons of exercising any function of the state. It is the capacity of evoking and directing the activities of the body politic. It is the ability to make one's will effective in any department of governmental action. The aggregate of all the persons or groups of persons who possess any share of this civil power constitutes the government of the state. They are the agents through whom the state, as a corporate unity, acts and moves and fulfills its end. Legislative, Judicial and Executive Power In respect of its subject matter, civil power is of three kinds, distinguished as legislative, judicial and executive, and the government is similarly divisible into three great departments, namely the legislature, the judicature and the executive. The functions which pertain to the first and second of these departments have been already sufficiently explained. The executive is simply the residue of the government after deducting the legislature and the judicature. Sovereign and subordinate power. In respect of its extent, civil power, whether legislative, judicial or executive, is of two kinds, being either sovereign or subordinate. Sovereign or supreme power is that which is absolute and uncontrolled within its own sphere. Within its appointed limits, if any, its exercise and effective operation are not dependent on or subject to the power of any other person. An act of sovereign power is one which cannot be prevented or annulled by any other power recognized by the constitution of the state. Subordinate power, on the other hand, is that which, even in its own sphere of operation, is in some degree subject to external control. There exists some other constitutional power which is superior to it, and which can prevent, restrict, or direct its exercise, or annul its operation. Section 42. Independent and Dependent States. States may be classified in two different ways. One, with respect to their external relations to other states, and two, with respect to their internal composition. The former mode has regard to their international, the latter to their constitutional position and structure. Classified internationally or externally, all states are of two kinds, being either independent or dependent. Classified constitutionally or internally, they are also of two kinds, being either unitary or composite. An independent or sovereign state is one which possesses a separate existence, being complete in itself, and not merely a part of a larger whole to whose government it is subject. A dependent or non-sovereign state, on the other hand, is one which is not thus complete and self-existent, but is merely a constituent portion of a greater state, which includes both it and others, 
and to whose government it is subject. The British Empire, the United States of America, and the Kingdom of Italy are independent states, but the Commonwealth of Australia, the Dominion of Canada, and the states of California and New York are dependent, for they are not self-existent, but merely parts of the British Empire and of the United States of America respectively, and subject to their control and government. It is maintained by some writers that a dependent state is not, properly speaking, a state at all, that the constituent and dependent parts of an independent state may be termed colonies, provinces, territories, and so on, but have no valid claim to the name of state. This objection, however, seems unfounded. It is contrary to the received usage of speech, and that usage seems capable of logical justification. Whether a part of a thing is entitled to the same name as the whole depends on whether the whole and the part possess the same essential nature. A part of a rope is itself a rope, if long enough to serve the ordinary purposes of one. But part of a shilling is not itself a shilling. Whether, therefore, any territorial division of a state is to be classed as itself a state depends on whether in itself and in isolation it possesses and fulfils the essential functions of one. This in turn depends on the extent of the autonomy or independent activity which is permitted to it by the Constitution. Speaking generally, we may say that any such division which possesses a separate legislature, judicature and executive and is thus separately organised for the maintenance of peace and justice, is entitled to be regarded as itself a state. The Commonwealth of Australia is a true state, though merely a part of the larger state of the British Empire, for it conforms to the definition of a state, as a society established and organised for the administration of justice and for external defence. Were it to become independent, it could, without altering its constitution, or taking upon itself any further function than those which it now possesses, stand alone as a distinct and self-sufficient political community. But a municipal corporation or a district council has not in itself the nature of a political society, for it does not in itself fulfil the essential ends of one. International law takes account only of independent or sovereign states, for it consists of the rules which regulate the relations of such states to one another. A dependent state is not an international unit, and possesses no international personality. Internationally regarded, its existence is simply a detail of the internal constitution of the larger and independent state of which it forms a part. This internal structure pertains exclusively to the constitutional law of the state itself, and the law of nations is not concerned with it. The existence of the Dominion of Canada or of the State of Victoria is a constitutional, not an international fact, for in the eye of the law of nations the whole British Empire is a single, undivided unit. Independent states are themselves of two kinds, distinguished as fully sovereign and semi-sovereign. A fully sovereign state is, as its name imports, one whose sovereignty is in no way derogated from by any control exercised over it by another state. It is possessed of absolute and complete autonomy. A semi-sovereign state, on the other hand, is one which is to a greater or less extent subordinate to some other, its sovereignty or autonomy being imperfect by reason of external control. 
the authority so exercised over it is termed a protectorate or sometimes suzerainty most independent states are fully sovereign the others being few in number and anomalous in character an example is zanzibar which stands in this relation to the british empire it is carefully to be noticed that semi-sovereign states are independent in the sense already explained they are self-existent international units and not merely parts of the state under whose control they are zanzibar is not part of the british empire these are two distinct states bearing towards each other a relation which is international and external and not merely constitutional and internal in order that a state should be dependent or non-sovereign it is not enough that it should be under the control of another state it must also be a constituent part of the state under whose control it is the mere exercise of a partial dominion by one state over another does not of necessity incorporate the two into a higher unity the establishment of a protectorate is not equivalent to annexation the acts of the one state are not imputed to the other the property and territory of the one are not those of the other also the subjects of the one are not those of the other one may be at peace while the other is at war the ionian islands were formerly a protected state under the control of great britain but during the crimean war they remained neutral and at peace a semi-sovereign state is in a position of unstable equilibrium it is the outcome of a compromise between dependence and independence which save in exceptional circumstances is not likely to be permanent the control exercised by one independent state over another is in most cases destined either to disappear altogether so that the semi-sovereign state becomes fully sovereign or to develop until the separate international existence of the inferior is merged in that of the superior the semi-sovereign state descending to the lower level of dependency and becoming merely a constitutional subdivision of the state to which it is subordinate section forty three unitary and composite states classified constitutionally in respect of their internal structure instead of internationally in respect of their external relations states are of two kinds being either unitary or composite a unitary or simple state is one which is not made up of territorial divisions which are states themselves a composite state on the other hand is one which is itself an aggregate or group of constituent states the british empire is composite because many of its territorial divisions are possessed of such autonomy as to be states themselves some of these constituent states are also composite in their turn australia and canada for example being composed of unitary states such as queensland and quebec composite states whether dependent or independent are of two kinds which may be distinguished as imperial and federal the difference is to be found in the nature of that common government which is the essential bond of union between the constituent states in an imperial state the government of one of the parts is at the same time the common government of the whole in a federal state on the contrary the common government is not that of one of the parts but a central government in which all the constituent states participate the constitution of the british empire is imperial that of the united states of america is federal in the former one of the parts 
namely Great Britain and Ireland, is preferred before the others, as supplying the authority which binds all of them into a single whole. The government of the United Kingdom possesses a double capacity, local and imperial. In its local capacity, it ministers the affairs of England, Scotland and Ireland, just as the government at Cape Town administers the affairs of Cape Colony. But in another capacity, it is the government of the whole empire, and provides the bond of common authority which unites all the constituent states of the empire into a single body politic. In a federal, as contrasted with an imperial constitution, there is no such predominance of one of the constituent states. The government of the whole is one in which all the parts have their allotted shares. The unity of an imperial state is the relation of all the other parts to one of them. The unity of a federal state is a relation of all the parts to a central and common authority. Summary Definition of the State Functions of the State Divided into essential and secondary Essential is further divided into administration of justice and war Relations between the two essential functions The judicial and extrajudicial use of force Minor differences the territory of the states, the members of the state, divided into citizens or subjects and resident aliens, citizenship in its historical aspect, citizenship and nationality, allegiance, divided into personal and permanent and local and temporary, the constitution of the state, constitutional law, its nature, its relation to constitutional fact, the government of the state, civil power, legislative, judicial and executive power, sovereign and subordinate power, the classification of states. States are divided into two, externally or internationally, and internally or constitutionally. External or internationally is divided into two parts, independent and dependent. Independent is further divided into fully sovereign and semi-sovereign. Internally or constitutionally is divided into unitary and composite, and composite is further divided into imperial and federal. End of section 9. Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia.